After all this, you still... I still want that gas, yes. And you had better deliver. All right, let's get right into it. The Greenhouse, everybody. It's me and Josh today, and we'll be covering a bit more of the fallout from recent congressional events. Um, Obviously, I don't think we're super late to these topics, but... Mainly today, I think our intent is to cover um, now the now late um, Senator Dianne Feinstein's as well as some of the fallout from this unprecedented ouster of Kevin McCarthy from the Speaker of the House. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's a lot to kind of get into today, right? I mean, I think Feinstein. Uh, for a while has had one of the more interesting and complicated legacies, I think, of um, most sitting politicians, right? Like, usually it's pretty easy to kind of square. Um, and I, I, mean, I think today we're probably going to mostly cover, you know, maybe the more negative aspects. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, you sort of see the celebration of her as like this trailblazer, um, a female politician when, you know, they weren't as common, things like that. But I think that there's a lot more nuance that is sort of obscured by the fact that, you know, we sort of always kind of do these um maybe not exactly a rehabilitation in her case because i don't think she necessarily had like a uh public opinion that was like in the tubes i mean certainly her um you know late tenure into the into office where she clearly had dementia where her staff was entirely running the show i mean that was harming her legacy but i think there was harmful attributes to it uh beforehand that i think are maybe under examined by a lot of the public and certainly by you know the uh more celebration that you see of her life and legacy that you're seeing from a lot of uh, mainstream politicians in the media. Yeah. And also I think the perception of, you know, her political origins in San Francisco, I think it's very easy to dismiss um, San Francisco as this kind of democratic stronghold, the quote unquote, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, uh, left coast as it gets called blah 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 but um if you look at some of her early career she's actually emerging from tumultuous local circumstances as well as what you can probably view as like a very early imposition of like a new style of urbanism as well as um this weird balance between reconciling that era's radical politics with law and order conservatism. And she kind of emerges from those circumstances in a very, I'd say somewhat tragic way almost, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's a wild story and mm-hmm. it, the context is lost to us in the present. It seems it's very easy to write people off for what we remember them for. It's also yeah. harder to write them off for what we don't remember them for as we'll find out. Yeah, for sure. All right, so let's see. I'm just trying to find um, the books we got recommended. Um, Because before we start, I do want to shout out a friend of the show, Modest Malice. They did provide us with some reading on her early career. At least it helped me flesh some of this out. So I got recommended uh, Season of the Witch by David Talbot, which is a kind of like narrative-driven history of San Francisco. Kind of how, and the the premise of the book is like how the summer of love, uh, may or may not have ushered in this kind of um bizarre era of California liberalism, 
And then the other book is Pictures of a Gone City by Richard Walker, who I think was a professor at UC Berkeley. That's a bit more of the drier read, but it's like a real economic analysis of like Silicon Valley and political developments in the Bay Area. So both were great reads. I didn't get to read them as closely as I'd like, but they did help me get some context on how Diane Feinstein came to emerge in the um, Bay Area scene and kind of how she was able to springboard that into her Senate career. So I will say I'm probably not as well versed with her Senate tenure as Josh is. So I'll try to go through her early career as thoroughly as I can. And then we'll jump into her Senate tenure and the real impacts of that. So, yeah, and I think that's the logical way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, time only goes in one direction, as you'll find out. <laughs> so yeah, um, Feinstein is pretty... Um, has a pretty good pedigree for a political figure. You know, she graduates from Stanford University in 1955 with a Bachelor of Arts in History and was a fellow at the Coro Foundation in San Francisco, which is an organization, I think... It was founded by, like, attorneys and, like, stockbrokers, if I understand. And it was an organization that provides young people with political experience. And she was able to use that uh, to get appointed to the uh, Women's Parole Board in 1960. And she served there until 1966. Uh, The Coral Foundation has a lot of um, pretty prestigious graduates in it. A lot of, like, California state and, like, state-level politicians are for sure graduates from it. But fellow program graduates also include current senators Mike Bennett, Tim Kaine, and Alex Padilla. So not necessarily the uh, Rolls Royce politicians uh, <laughs> that are uh, known for anything that's like tremendously positive. You could argue like what what is the celebrity status of like politicians today versus in yesteryears, right? Where it's like. Senators, I think, used to be a lot more prestigious, and they used to have a lot more celebrity. Like, uh, who was the guy at the Ghost Monkey Trial? I'm trying to remember. Um, William Jennings Bryan. Like, he was a celebrity in his day, right? Yeah. Now, senators not so much. Usually, most of the attention gets like, uh, taken up by like the president, maybe members of like the House, if even. Um, but it's like again, like the Coral Foundation seems to pay off you can get if you if you manage to qualify for that fellowship right mm-hmm. um now she's able to then make a jump to the san francisco board of supervisors that's basically their city council and their county government uh in 1969 and remained on the board for nine years and had this reputation as like a um as a centrist democrat Albert's book, the scene in San Francisco at this time is actually pretty wild. You know, you've got this kind of old world, very conservative, like old money politics that wants to maintain its authority over the city. You have radical elements and the, you know, like very active gay scene in San Francisco. That's the jump that is you know facing like the brunt of some of that 
And then you're also just in this crazy backdrop of the Zodiac Killer. Um, <laughs> you know, jo uh, Jim Jones, all that shit. Um, what else? And, like, the Jim Jones stuff, it gets super crazy because, like, they uh, end up killing, like, a San area, like, congressman. So the the reputation of bay area politics as being obsessed with crime may have some genuine origins you know like this was a this was a pretty wild scene for 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 politics in i want to say the late 60s early 70s yeah for sure at a local level yeah um and during Feinstein's tenure on the board, um, she was a target of the New World Liberation Front, which was a lo the local city-level terrorist group that carried out bombings in the 70s. Uh, they placed a bomb on the windowsill of her home that failed to explode. And they were also just, like, targeting a lot of, like, the what they deemed to be conservative elements in the city. You can read more about it in Talbot's book. Um... To that end as well, um, she later makes it as mayor under very, um, just very tragic and very strange circumstances. So the prior mayor, George Moscone, and um, another influential board member at the time, Harvey Milk, who was like a leading scene in like the city's gay community, are killed uh tragically by another member of the board what was his name david white um and there's there's like a bunch of crazy stuff yeah going yeah it was uh, dan white dan white exactly and there's crazy stuff going on at this time in the in, in local politics in the area right like i'm not the, you can read about this in talbot's book but like george muscone's like uh electoral strategy unintentionally relied on like jim jones and the people's temple for like door knocking efforts okay and that was a whole scandal at the time you know harvey milk is making waves as this like very like brash and like out of the closet gay politician um and was also like i don't i don't necessarily know about his like uh policies per se my reading and my knowledge of all this is very surface level, but he was kind of like uh, trying to do like a local version of like Rainbow Coalition stuff or like him as a gay leader trying up with like, um, you know, black churches with union politics. And it was, he was this very well-liked political figure. And he had this like, <laughs> he kind of did like what we accuse the Democrats now of, right? Where it's like, no, you have to be nice to people even if you disagree with them. But in his case, it would pay off. Um, right, yeah. And I mean, that's kind of just... And to be fair, I mean, I'd, I'd hesitate to say that it's entirely a useless strategy, even today. But uh, the fact that, that you can see the more obvious dividends being uh, received there is probably the part that's a little bit more, um, you know... Yeah. Rose-tinted glasses of nostalgia a little bit. You know, kind of like we're... Not that it's, you know, we... Uh, are exaggerating it right right but it's like it's sort of like this is sort of this bygone age where it feels like that paid off a bit more than it does now it, it also seemed to have been executed a lot more smartly on his end one you can just do these things a little more effectively at a local level than you can with like 
national partisan politics, for example. But it also seemed to be like a kind of, yeah, we're friends, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, kind of classic city politics. Um, so these, and, the, and George Moscone himself, you know, he's this, um, you know, educated Catholic leader in the community, but sets himself up as a progressive type. He's not exactly perfect either, but he kind of sees himself as the kind of, yeah, we can integrate um, the the city's, you know, reputation for wealth as well as its, like, radical and artistic and diverse elements. I don't see a problem with this. He was that kind of guy. Although, to be fair, he would always butt heads with the police. And, and that's, that's not mm-hmm. here or there. But... Feinstein kind of comes up in still as a Democrat, but in the middle of, I'd say, I'd say further to the right of these guys. I wouldn't say that she was vociferously like conservative, but definitely something that comes up in Talbot's books is um, a gay activist is quoted as saying her homosexuals were not Harvey's homosexuals. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just, I'm just I mean, trying. To... I, mean, I, I mean, it's known that like when he was still alive, that like he did view her as like something of an obstructive force to some of his agenda, um, too. So it's you know there's you know how like I mean I don't, I don't think it's necessarily and when we say obstruction na- like now it means something kind of totally different from what it means like back then right where it's just sort yeah. of like you know obstruction is a barrier that can be overcome back then whereas like now we just think of like oh yeah like you know, the house floor has been nuked and there's no speaker, as we'll discuss later, right? That's, you know, that's kind of a, a different level than exactly. um, than where we were back in the, you know, that era. Of course. And then also, like, at the same time, like, they have, like, an early version of, like, a progressive prosecutor who's also, like, not as harsh on... um like prostitution, for example, in San Francisco. So, like, mm. you have, like, a very strange scene. It's not the kind of usual city politics you see, especially here in, like, the Midwest or on the East Coast. Um, And I'd say that the old money of San Francisco was not always represented until, like, it started to consolidate behind certain people. And it's, you know, it was harder for conservatives, especially in, like, a very radical space, to get traction. So uh, Einstein kind of comes in after, you know, White kills Biscone and, and Harvey Milk. Hon- honestly, she was at the scene of the crime. It was pretty tragic, like, what she observed that day. Um, and in a closed session later on is basically given the mayorship, right? But, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it was also like, this was viewed with suspicion even then. Like, elements were very, you know, upset about Harvey Milk's death, suspected foul play then. I can't comment, you know, that that's not... Well, I mean, obviously it's assassination. There's, there's always foul play. There's always foul play. And it's like, I, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, who stands to benefit more from this than, than, than Diane Feinstein? But her mayor, like her mayorship, is kind of marked by this, um, this push for law and order politics. That's how you get the old money conservatives to shut up. That's mm-hmm. how you 
present at the time you present yourself with this like facade of like a fair face yeah. when it comes down to like how you deal with radical or um more like uh ostracized elements in society and you could argue that her tenure kind of sets a tone for early neoliberalism in in city politics i can't comment on that decisively I would maybe defer to um, pictures of a gone city to see how the socioeconomic situation plays out in those dynamics. But, you know, I, the she kind of like exists at the origin of this uh, law and order crime panic, as well as um, this backdrop of just crazy events going on in the Bay Area. And that's her political origins, where she comes in as mayor of San Francisco. And I think we've all seen, like, the Twitter thread after she died of, like, strange calls of, you know, like, pushing for the prosecution of black activists so they could keep the Confederate flag flying in San Francisco. Well, yeah, and I, I think, you know, specifically at San Francisco, one's delving into, worth delving into a little bit more. The uh, Well, I mean, obviously it's all in San Francisco, but the um, the Confederate flag is the reason it was done was because um, I believe they were hosting the um, Democratic National Convention. Mm. And it was a way to cater um, or like build support with Southern Democrats. Yeah, because they were um, still around that time. That's yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know they're, they're still around, and this was an effort to sort of appease them. Obviously, you know that that flag, not that not that that excuses it, right? Because like that's sort of this incident that you'll see kind of people like mention like every so often randomly about her um, when even when she was still alive. That like why, why would you do this? Like it's not like California was you know seceded or anything like that, right? Um, and that then that's sort of the context there. Um, so that's sort of, you know, this kind of, yeah, that, you that can comes see up in her career that like how she handled the events of the, um, democratic convention in San Francisco at the time played a major role in like, cause radical politics was big this era, you know, like yes. there were the big like DNC protests in Chicago and you had the Chicago seven, all that shit go on. Right. So. I think her trying to either suborn or like suppress those elements to maintain like a allegedly more peaceful convention is both like a reflection of that uh, law and order philosophy as well as like a way to signal to the state and national party, hey, I can control uh, the left in my, in my neck of the woods. I can keep them under on a leash, you know? And, and that is sort of like the start of this era where that is sort of, you know, that's increasingly becoming a major push, right? Not mm -hmm. necessarily controlling the left, right? Because that had been sort of this struggle with, you know, when you had a more militant left um, presence in this country. But it's, um, you know, this, this desire to sort of, you know, separate out, like, you know, like kind of really move the Democratic Party to more so that, you know, center-left, center, arguably center-right wing um, that doesn't fully materialize until later, right? But, like, obviously, you know, it's, it's sort of that Reagan era that this is sort of at the start for um, that pushes that, you know, completely away. Yeah, and you, and you even see this in some of, like, you know, 
her other decisions, right? With like vetoing a rent control like provision, um, you know, benefits to um unmarried couples. Mm-hmm. What else? Like again, just like weird fear mongering about like immigration. It kind of is this new synthesis of how do you keep old money happy but you have this like respectability of liberal politics because uh, let's be honest like the american right is pretty it's pretty gross to observe you never like ta- like talking in that like really xenophobic really like blood and soil type of shit they're on these days right mm-hmm. but if you kind of deliver all the things they want which is we still get to make our money you know we don't have to look at anything we don't want to look at um and you keep the you keep the riffraff out yeah we'll have a few rainbow flags that's fine yeah <laughs> yeah you know it helps when they're not being you know constantly you know called pedophiles and stuff like that but, right. uh, you know on today's media but you know yeah you know it, it helps yeah. So, I mean, to, to, to basically say, like, it is very true that she is a trailblazer um, in a time when women just do not hold all the cards in politics at the time. Mm-hmm. And in Talbot's book, they even get into how, like, she just attracted the worst in male political opponents. Like they always were able to lean heavy into the sexism against her. Um. So like that, that part is always like, I don't think that can ever be downplayed. Right. That I think there mm-hmm. is an element of sexism that has to be reckoned with in the American political sphere. At the same time though, like Feinstein is a very, shrewd and very um measured political figure in in this local scene and i think like you know one with her educational pedigree and then two with like this dark (laughs) dark fortune or misfortune as you as you look at it right is is able to like put a major um administrative milestone on her resume with her mayoralty of um of San Francisco. And like, Mm -hmm. of course it's not the politics that you or I agree with. It's not politics that you or I would see as, you know, doing anything to ameliorate present conditions today. But that was the direction the country was headed at the time. And she delivered on that for sure. Um, and I think that's the best I can do to summarize her early career. Otherwise we're going to, we're going to be here all day. I don't think I don't think we're here to be, you know, like um Harvey Milk assassination truthers, but I will say that like it is one thing that is still like a Bay Area 9/11 almost. Like with the way with the amount of theories it inspires and that was just an interesting thread to observe. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um so I guess we can get into her uh, Senate tenure, right? So she's right. elected uh, on a special election in 92. I can't remember. Um, let me double check on who she replaced. Um, I believe. Uh, let's see. Uh, John Seymour, who, or Seymour, who was a Republican. Okay. Uh, he, 
Uh, let's see. He was he himself was appointed, um, but lost a special election to Finn. Okay, so he was appointed um, to continue Pete Wilson's term. Who, okay. Uh, why was he removed? Oh, he ran for governor. So fun stuff. So he runs for governor, gets into that office, appoints this guy. Then there's a special election. Diane Feinstein wins there. Um, and this is in 1992. So this is uh, firmly in uh, what's often called the year of the women, uh, mm -hmm. where a lot of women and a lot of female politicians uh, won elected office. Um, a lot of this is attributed to the uh, Clarence Thomas hearing with the Anita Hill scandal and all that and how she was um, in particular, it was like a lot of people say it was like the visual of like because those hearings were televised of just seeing like all of these like old white men or older white men, um, you know, interrogating a young black woman there's no women on there right and you know so they're kind of insensitivity towards um her allegations of thomas's sexual misconduct and whatnot is sort of seen as this big motivating force to sort of uh get women in office and and to be fair the year of the woman i mean it's it's it is it is historic i'm not going to take that away from it but yeah it's yeah not like it's not like a ton of women got into office um <laughs> Uh, notably because um, she won that special election, she got, she got in immediately. Uh, she did get a couple months tenure boost over Barbara Boxer, who was also elected that same time, except it was for the other seat, uh, which was naturally up for re-election. Uh, Barbara Boxer, I note um, in the outline, uh, she retired a while ago, um, and she's currently age 82. So, again, maybe she... Um, <laughs> substantially younger than Feinstein when she retired. And clearly I, I think, you know, maybe that should be considered, you know, when, when we kind of, you know, weigh in on like the gerontocracy part of this, right. That not everyone is uh, necessarily seeing it uh, beneficiary beneficial to uh, remain in office for a million years. Yeah. She was there for quite a while. Yeah. And that, and like, I think, you know, with moves like that, I don't think anyone really has anything bad to say about Barbara Boxer. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, like no one ever, like, you know, those who like remember her, like generally remember her pretty fondly. Um, and, and those who, you know, don't, I mean, don't obviously, but, uh, you know, it's like, I, I think it's, um, you know, I, I think there's there's something to be said about that, right? That it was a politician who, you know, kind of read the tea leaves. Obviously, she was replaced by Kamala Harris when she uh, left. Um, but yeah, so um, I was actually just looking, scrolling through a list of some of the bills that Feinstein herself had sponsored. Um, and it's kind of interesting because there's a few ones that I did not realize were being passed uh, quite this, like, like in the early, late 90s, early 2000s. But uh so she like her first bill that gets passed is like this California Desert Protection Act. Mm. Um, but then there's a few other private laws. So these are basically um, laws that are like the, normally like the welfare state's pretty well established, obviously, today. Right. And in the 90s and 2000s it was as well. But you still have some of these private laws where basically you have a law that's like literally worded a bill for the relief of Guy Taylor. Um, or huh. really for Tony Lars. So the, these are basically, and like the Guy Taylor one is specifically, it gives him like the government is insuring him in that law. So like private laws are these weird things. They used to be way more common, um, especially like in the uh, before you know the New Deal and you had like the welfare state. Um, notably, like Civil War soldiers had like pensions that had to be passed like long after the Civil War, and that, there was a sort of this weird legacy to it. 
Um, but it's interesting seeing that like these were ninety, these were from the uh, 106th Congress, so that's 1999 to 2000. It's interesting mm-hmm. seeing those private laws stick around. Um, there's a few, you know, kind of renaming things, right? We've got, you know, uh, got the uh, John C. Corman Federal Building, a bill to extend the uh, special postage stamp for breast cancer research for two years. <laughs> Um, some stuff, uh, there's a few things, right? There's some environmental things, public lands, of course, Healthy Forest Restoration Act. Um, you've got the 14th Dalai Lama Congressional Gold Medal Act. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, that did not age well. <laughs> no. Preserving U- U.S. Attorney Independence Act of 2007. Um, so, like, some of the bills she sponsored, th- there's not a ton of, like, signature legislation but she is um, relatively well so associated with, um, and there's some private laws even in the late 2000s too. Interesting. Um, the the stuff that she's really associated with is kind of gun control, um, environmental policy. But I, I I think that record is a bit mixed, right? I mean, I named the right. Desertification Act, but I think um, as global warming became a bigger and bigger concern, she has stood out as kind of out of touch with the times and you know some people like are like well it's because she's old but again it's like i don't think her um environmental policy is necessarily to like the right of someone like pete Buttigieg, right who's substantially younger than her right um but some of the uh things that are kind of worth pointing out right so, so she was a major um force in getting the um 19 uh the i can't remember the exact year but the early 90s uh, gun control legislation, the assault ban passed that was unpassed under Clinton. Um, and this was kind of like, there's a few like clips that, you, that you've probably seen circulating around the internet if you've been following, um, you know, the uh, remembrance of her life and legacy and stuff like that. But there's, you know, stuff where she really points to um, the assassination of Harvey Milk um, as like a big thing where she's like, you know, she was there, you know, at the scene of the crime, uh, more or less where like she saw this. So she used that as like this big vehicle to promote gun control legislation. Uh, obviously that has kind of been a bit of a non sequitur for several years now. So it's, you know, it's, it's one of those issues, right? Where it's, we always talk about it with frustration because increasingly nothing changes because of just the difficulty in getting it anything passed but at least back when things did get passed she was um a strong force for the right side of that issue i think yeah Um, yeah then uh should we do let's see do we want to do uh I guess we'll do the Iraq War first. Yeah, I did. I did remember a small detail. I think I need to say this before. Yeah, like, you go for read. it. Yeah. By the way, at the time, um, Feinstein was on the board of supervisors for San Francisco. Current board members at the time also included uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband, <laughs> as well as Willie Brown, who, little known fact, was dating Kamala Harris at some point later on. What? Yeah, yeah. What's the age difference there? Uh, let's let's take a look. When did she start uh dating Billy Brown? Well, Willie Brown's 89. Yeah, he's he's old, man. Uh, yeah. He's older than Biden. 19, <laughs> in 1994 and 1995 after his election as mayor. He was 30 years her senior. Whew. 
Yeah, I'm telling you, Bay Area, Bay Area politics is like it's understated how it is. That's so weird. Yeah, <laughs> crazy how like just like inbred it is too, right? Right. Like you yeah, said, like everyone's yeah. connected to each other uh, in some way or another. I mean, that's that's a particularly bizarre connection. But wow. I mean, okay. it's it's, it's a, again the thing with Pelosi's husband too. That got me. That. Maybe that's right. why she, uh, I mean, I guess they, I mean, they've they probably known each other for years, but maybe that was part of the motivation for her to attend her funeral. Yeah, I'm just, let me, let me take a look. San Francisco City Council. Uh, oh, sorry, board. Board of Supervisors. Yeah, Ron Pelosi. Um, Mr. Hammertime himself. Exactly, exactly. From uh, 68 to 1980. Okay. So, like, and that was, that, that was, like, an understated thing when, like, the Hammertime controversy was going on. Like, of course, that shit was crazy, but it's, like, I think everyone was forgetting, like, yeah, he was also, like a major local political figure for for a significant amount of time. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, everyone just kind of like, oh, well, he's just, you know. Oh, that's Nancy's Nancy husband. <laughs> yeah, like, that was kind of what we dismissed as. But it's like, oh, no, this guy actually had, like, a career and whatnot. Yeah, and it's, it's not to say that, like, oh, he Nancy wouldn't have gotten anywhere without her. Like, she, without him. Right. It's like, yeah, she was, I think, a pretty influential fundraiser for the for the Democratic Party at that time, too. So, like... I think, you know, that's where people working in the political sphere, building these, like, power relationships, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost natural than it is unnatural. But Yeah, I, I think that's that. fair. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the Kamala Harris-Willie uh, Brown thing is... Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's any way to, like, <laughs> rate that one off as natural, but... I, I mean, yeah, I, I, can see I, the, I can see the motivation, but... I wish I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just like it, it, it's you know like every it, you you would just want to know about these details not to be like a gawker or to be like a gossip. Like, when you study politics, it's always good to be like, okay, that's where the connection started. Good to know. Yeah, well, that's fair. Um. Yeah, so I, I guess you know, continuing for a Senate career, right? I think the Iraq War is probably, you know, I, I I've seen uh, who was I think Mehdi Hassan had said that like his the highlight of her career and the low light of her career are both in involved with the Iraq War. That's that's, um, a, that's pretty fair, yeah. Yeah, so there's um there's actually a movie called The Report. It was released in 2019. It's actually about one of her staffers, uh, Daniel Jones, who wrote. Um, what I think is usually called the Jones Report. Uh, this is the thing that disclosed the CIA use of torture. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had appointed him to that position to discuss this. And the um, the kind of value of it, right, was, you know, it, it, we kind of, I, I think people kind of forget, like, in hindsight, that we didn't really know, like, the full details of what exactly was being done um, in the war on terror, right? Um, like we kind of, and, and at the time this came out, like this was an incredibly detailed report. I mean, it's, uh, I think over a thousand pages goes through all of these things that the CIA had done 
of course, you know, there's sort of a catch-22 where she, once she received the report, was a little reluctant to release it um, because, you know, it would look bad uh, for the United States, of course. And uh, they ultimately, um, what, ironically, what motivates them to release it is that they lost the Senate majority and they knew that Republicans would just bury it. Um, so they release it pretty much like right in that lame duck period um, between, you know, when Cong the next Congress gets sworn in. So probably like in November, if I recall correctly. Um, so that's one thing as well uh, that she did that I think was was relatively positive, even if it was, you know, somewhat reluctantly. So so on, on that thread real quick, like. It, it almost comes up like in the spirit of like the revelations at Abu Ghraib, right? Where like. Mm hmm info comes out and it like really sours the public perception on on the conflict and specifically u.s involvement so i'm almost wondering like to what extent you need this to be covered up even though like this information came out later yeah this and, is this came out 2014 right and like i they they cover this a lot in uh spencer ackerman's um reign of the the torture program and stuff the black sites mm -hmm. all that crazy stuff i think those revelations have been like even more revealing about like the fraudulence and horror of this conflict but like even with like this report the release and knowledge of them has been somewhat subdued and it's just not as um salient in the public eye i've observed I almost wonder, like, you know, is the downplaying because, like, it, it just presents a problem for these foreign policy objectives? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I think it's it's a few things, to be honest, but I, I think mm -hmm. a lot of it kind of boils down to the notion that you have, um, you know, you know I, I think a big component really is just the fact that at the time, Americans were still kind of in that patriotic fever, right? I mean, the mid Two thousand mid twenty tens, we were definitely like coming out of it, especially after like you know the pretense of like the war in Iraq was, mm -hmm. um, you know, largely false, um, right? So there's there's that component to it, but I also think that you just don't. I, I don't know. I I think that, and it kind of gets into like this next story, right? Which is like the idea of her support of the NSA. Um, Snowden was also around the same time. She called him a traitor. Mm -hmm. Um, was generally supportive of them at almost every turn, except the one time. And I remember when this came out on like the news media that they were like spying on members of Congress, and she didn't like that. She was very unhappy about that. And it always kind of came across as maybe not hypocritical, but very self-serving, right? That this was sort of an emphasis, and like other members of of Congress were also upset by this. But she was sort of like the the one who kind of like raised the alarm on it. That like, hey, they're spying on us. This sucks. Um. And I think that there's still just that weird. I don't know. I, I, as much as I think we're kind of like as a whole, the public is sort of exhausted from like these conflicts. I think they're also exhausted about just hearing about them, too. And they don't really like, you know, yeah, like we did some bad stuff, like whatever. I'm not responsible. Let's just move on. Uh, and I think that's a lot of a lot of it, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also like how do i put this right it's like one there is the exhaustion aspect but then it's also the what am i what am i supposed to do about it 
Well, there's that too, yeah, and and it that is not necessarily super clear. Yeah. Of course, I, I know I asked a, a very complicated question with that. That was a very <laughs> big ball of yarn to unravel there. Yeah, I was just like, oh, I wasn't expecting that, but that, that's fine. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it, it, there's a lot to unravel there, right? I mean, it, there, you could do a whole episode on I mean, not that I necessarily see all the value in like going through like every step-by-step war on terror um everything going on there right but like you know it's still one of those things where we have like as a nation like some trauma from it particularly obviously from the um you know 9-11 more specifically but like i think just the way the war on terror was conducted and everything i think that there's still just a lot of trauma that we haven't processed through as a country that you know, I, I think has led to barbaric choices on our part and just other, you know, mistakes. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's almost like I, I I don't know. The war machine continues on regardless of your consent in the matter. Um, but we live with the effects of it day to day. And it's like especially like, you know, if you know people who served or you just you've observed in certain communities how like the military is often presented as like your only way out of your circumstances. Sure. We throw we throw a good amount of our young people into this charnel house, you know. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's 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 fucked up. But I I think you're right. It's you know the the political tea leaves of how we get into the the Iraq and Afghanistan conflict, right? It's kind of like Jim Cramer on CNBC telling you to buy stocks. They said it was a good it was a good idea to buy and everybody put their chips in and I would argue almost to this day we're dealing with the as you said the the trauma and more specifically the the blowback of that poor investment. Well, and and some of the way that we've dealt that has also been poor, right? I mean, I'd say exactly. the, Trump, the Trump presidency is entirely a product of um, grief over, like, you know, being lied to and, like, for the war in Iraq, right? And just, like, the lack of success, like, or tangible success in a lot of people's minds for the war on terror, right? Just sort of seeing, like, the futility of those conflicts, I think, has been the main motivation for a lot of people voting for Trump. I mean, it certainly gave him a lot of success in the Republican primary, and I think it, it helped him in the general, too. I mean, because everyone always argued that, like, oh, Hillary's the warmonger, and yeah, she doesn't have a great... uh record when it comes to war and peace necessarily but the notion that trump would have a better one and he didn't have a better one despite you know all these like talks that like oh he's gonna establish this new world order or whatever nonsense um, right that's you know going to end conflict for all time like that's that's a whole <laughs> whole nother story <laughs> but like but yeah, like I mean, like I, I just think that that's like probably like the biggest manifestation we've seen of um, some of like the 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 war on terror trauma and stuff like that. I mean, there's there's other manifestations too, but I think that's a major part of it. Yeah, I think I think that's probably the best way we can sum that up. Yeah. Um, getting back on track with you know, I think probably her worst legacy with the war in Iraq, right? So she votes in favor of the war. That's not unusual, right? Every you know it was oh, everyone yeah, was doing it more or less. It, yeah, 
But where it's a problem, and of course, you know, she later said she regrets it, pretty much as every Democratic politician with any sense has said, uh, several Republicans as well. Right. Um, the problem is, is that uh, her regret doesn't exactly come from the revelation of new information. Um, this, uh, if you want to go over to that Twitter thread real quick. Yes, yes. Um, so this is from uh, Scott Ritter, who is a former UN weapons inspector, uh, USMC intelligence officer. What does that acronym mean? Uh, Marine Corps. Oh, Marine Corps. Okay, perfect. Uh, maybe he served with our, our favorite JAG. Um, <laughs> probably not. Oh, no. Probably not, if I had to guess. So I kind of just wanted to read this, like just you know, verbatim in his words. Uh, I met Senator Dianne Feinstein once in the lead-up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq. She had just recently been assigned to the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence in 2001, and it was in that capacity that she had a senior staffer from the committee ask me to come to Washington, D.C. to brief her on the, on the Iraqi WMD and the allegations being made by the Bush administration that Iraq continued to possess them. We met in a secure conference room in the Capitol building, me, the senator, and half-dozen staffers and aides. It was a polite, professional affair, with the senator asking questions and taking notes. Eventually, she confronted me. Your position is causing us some difficulty. You're making the U.S. look bad in the eyes of the world. Big red flag there. <laughs> I replied that my analysis and the underlying facts were rock solid, something she agreed with. I said that while I knew she couldn't reveal sensitive intelligence, if she could look me in the eye and say that she had seen unequivocal proof that Iraqi retained WMD, I'd shut up and go away. She looked at her retinue and then me. I have seen no such intelligence, she replied. She thanked me for the briefing and said it provided her with food for thought. On October 11, 2002, Senator Feinstein voted in favor of the resolution uh, authorizing the war in Iraq. Later, she said she had, was misled by the Bush administration and bad intelligence. I will forever know that Senator Feinstein is someone who had been empowered by the truth and lacked the moral courage to act on it. The blood of thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis stains her soul. I hope she stands in judgment before her maker and she, and she is punished accordingly. Damn. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, I mean, re really dug into her at the end. <laughs> especially <laughs> um but i mean yeah like i mean that's kind of like we i think for the most part people generally take the, the like those statements in good faith when people have said like oh i regret voting for it right i mean it's it's, it's as much as it is an easy thing an easy cop out right like oh yeah mm -hmm. i was misled i didn't have the information we kind of ignore the fact that some people did have the information yeah, and um, she was on the Intel community or Intel committee for quite a quite a long time, I imagine, right? Uh yeah, I mean I think she was still on there. Um because I know there was concerns. Um there was an article uh that was um I believe from uh I can't remember, but it was it was from a um the, there was a Pentagon source that had said that they're concerned about the fact that you have like senators getting confidential information while they have dementia, um, and they see it as a oh, security risk. Um, and, and, and we, it, I, to be fair, I don't think it was just her because it, there's also been several reports that I think like fourteen to fifteen, maybe more at this point, um, members are on um, like dementia medication. Um, so, you know, not, not good stuff. Um, let's see. 
trying to see where she was assigned. Um, her, uh, they took her page down. That's helpful. Wikipedia, um, oh, what? No, they took her page down on the U.S. Senate site. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Let's see, maybe Wikipedia. What I wanted to point out, though, too, is, and I, I use this example in my class um, because it was really fascinating. Um, I believe Senator, it was, I think Patrick Leahy was also on that committee at the same time, and he voted against the authorization. Um, but this is, um, they, he talked about this, like, in his memoir, talked about this weird thing where, like, he, he would, like, regularly go on walks, and he, like, ran into, like, these mysterious gentlemen who had said, oh, hey, have you seen File 2? Or whatever it was. I think he was, he might have been censoring it, and he said he hadn't. And I said, oh, you should check it out. It's really interesting. And so he looked at it, and he's like, whoa, like, holy crap. Like, this is, like, against what the Bush administration is saying. And then um, they met him again and, like, said, like, oh, also look at this one. And it's, like, just kind of this creepy little, like, you know, these members of the Intelligence Committee who were kind of, I mean, they're kind of acting rogue, right? They had clearly tracked right. his routine, um, but were clearly acting to try to, you know, prevent the war. Um, and, and he went against it. Um, okay, is this the Intelligence Committee? Yeah, yeah, there she yeah. is. Perfect. Um, yeah, the, uh, what, third highest? Rubio's really the ranking member? That's, I mean, I mean, I don't know because the one thing you can always count on the Republicans to do is step down and get a new ghoul in. I'm, I well, I know in the House they have rules about that, uh, like where like they 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 essentially force it, but in the Senate, I guess it's, I don't know how they determine their 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 ranks there necessarily, but that's kind of weird. Yeah, I, I know it has a lot more of those informal, but like. If you break the rule, you will be shunned. Kind of nonsense. Yeah, with the seniority on both sides, I would I would reckon. But yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure you know. Yeah, get 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 the get the Cuban guy from Florida in the Intel community Intel committee. I'm <laughs> sure that was an incidental decision. I'm sure about that. Right. <laughs> no, he. I mean, him. I'm less worried about than Tom Cotton on that committee. Dear God. Yeah, that's that's like the last part. Like, Tom, Tom Cotton is a ghoul. Tom Tom Cotton is like for sure. You know all the jokes about people to judge killing dogs. Like that's Tom Cotton with like Afghan children. Unfortunately, I'm not. I'm 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 only half joking. I'm oh only my half god! Joking. Yeah, that guy. That guy's um, that guy's demonic. The way he talks about people, it's it's frightening. Anyhow. Yeah, so uh, that's kind of her involvement with I me. Mean, I guess more broadly the war on terror, but uh, particularly the Iraq war as well. Um, the other, I kind of guess moving on, you know, there's a few other like really real highlights uh, or lowlights of her career. There's that infamous moment. Um, I want to say this was, was it during the Trump era or was it? It was, it was in the early Trump uh years and i would argue well, it had like, to be like midway through right because like aoc's in office by that point otherwise I, the Green I, new deal is not something people are talking about i i would i would reckon so but i would also say that like this is probably when the first crop of feinstein worries of like her cognition start coming in you know i, I think like were that's they, were they warranted here i think 
So I, I guess, like, you know, to go on, to yeah. what we're talking about, right, there's this, uh, there was these school kids that were on a field trip to the, like, to the state, you know, to the Washington, D.C. to sort of talk about, you know, like, oh, hey, let's, you know, kind of lobby members to vote for the Green New Deal. And they go to her uh, to talk about it. And she just kind of puts them down. Just like, oh, that's not how elected politics works. And it's just like, oh, like, where are we going to get the money from? All this stuff. And it's like, you know, pretty I think, much. I like, think it was even, it was even crueler than that. It was basically like a, you don't tell me what to do. I've been here kind of shit it was even yeah yeah, and a lot of it as i said it was like it was like kind of ripped right from like conservative talking points right like the like you know this this is expensive like we can't vote for that like not even necessarily like you know the, the the stuff that might be a little bit more you know tenable like from like a liberal perspective so that was kind of a shame um but yeah, like what was what? Why was there concerns about her mentally? I thought she seemed with it, just kind of a jerk. I, that was what I initially believed, but I think like probably not. And my my memory may be compressing events, right? But I think it's like probably that happens, and then not too long after is the first um, series of op eds about gerontocracy, and then like. I'd say maybe the first whispers of um worries about her cognition, I would say, but I don't know if I'm compressing like a few months or a few years, you know? That's just my memory, my recollection of the sequence of events. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely this was a... It raised the, the awareness about like the gerontocracy aspect for sure, yeah. right? Because it's it's sort of like, oh, well, like... Of, like they're like, out of li- touch, yeah. Well, it's, and it's like literally the trope, right? Of like, oh, these people who you know have so little time left on this earth don't care about you know the, the climate for their children and grandchildren right. and stuff like that, or great, great, great grandchildren, probably in her case, um, <laughs> the whole you know descended line or whatever. Um, I, I actually don't know how how many. Uh, I know she has a child, but I I don't necessarily know everything Let's else. See, yeah. She got. She has one daughter, and they have. So she, yeah, she has a uh, granddaughter. I'd say. Yeah. yeah. I just don't know if it's really you know how far, how much further down the line goes. Probably doesn't go that much further, but being a little hyperbolic. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, as I said, it's kind of like I think it highlighted the gerontocracy concerns. Um, I I actually had an interview recently where someone was asking me about like the age limits whether or not they're a good idea. And and I, I generally don't think that they're necessarily the solution that we're looking for, because as I was saying, like, you know, at the start of this, right, you know, her positions on the climate, it's not like you have, like, a huge, like, you know, generational divide between who it, who does and doesn't support, like, aspects of the Green New Deal, right? Because you have younger ones who don't as well. Um and there's just kind of that component to it. But, I mean, really, I mean, like, this is kind of a a low-hanging fruit, right? It's not exactly something that's, you know, super impactful at the end of the day, right? Whether she supported it or not, I don't think it was going to pass in, you know, 2018, 19, whenever that was. And I don't think, you know, I, I, again, I, I don't think like her vote was necessarily pivotal in that regard, but it it just really kind of came across as particularly mean spirited, yeah, and you know, kind of you know, it's a, it's a little bit of like a stain on like her climate legacy, right? Like you can't really say that you're like a super strong climate advocate if you're not willing to like 
take that extra step on like anything. It's not like she was like, well, I have better ideas for how to fix this. It's just like, oh, yeah, learn how Congress works. You, you stupid kids. Like. Yeah, yeah. You leave you me alone. At least just Get out of my office. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um. Then next, we've got a lot of her. So she was also on the Judiciary Committee. So she she had some top billing positions, right? Mm-hmm. Um. So Supreme Court confirmations are where she kind of has um a real mixed legacy. Uh. Well, actually, a pretty bad one. I would. I would just. I'd. I'd just go out and say that. So, yeah. Um, she's voted against like every young Republican that's, you know, been put before, right? I mean, like that's you know, at least in on the uh Supreme Court, right? Um, lower court, I'm sure she's accepted um more than her fair share of uh, you know, lower court nominees, but that's kind of the norm. Um, so I'm not gonna, you know, particularly ring her over the raker of the coals for that. But when it came to, you know, so she voted against Roberts and Alito, though with Alito, she kind of demonstrates a little bit of like I think that, you know neoliberal weakness right of like opposing the use of the filibuster against him uh because there was like legitimate um questions of whether whether or not democrats should filibuster him because a lot of people at the time and this is kind of like lost to the public record in some ways uh but if you look at um some of the more insider stuff a lot of people at the time knew that alito was like super super conservative like more Mm -hmm. than like what would typically be acceptable on the court um and they kind of just, you know, they, they didn't fight the good fight, as it were. And I mean, as we as we have commented on in the present, right, like the Dobbs leak was his work, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, like, oh, we don't know for sure, but it most likely almost certainly Let's was his. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, just to, you know, in case he decides to, you know, give us a, uh, you know, a cease and desist or some type of, you know, other lawsuit, got to say, it's not. A hundred percent confirmed, but there's a ninety-nine point nine nine percent chance that he was the one who did it. And and we know this because like you know he's he has done it before, right? It's not right. like you know whether or not he did it specifically that time. He has done it plenty of other times. So you know he he deserves you know his his lion's share of the blame for you know the deinstitutionalization of his precious Supreme Court. So. Uh, anyway, so the, the where I think the big problems come in is um, well, I'll start with the more minor one first, right? This one got more public traction, but I think is arguably the least offensive. Is that you know when after the Amy Comey Barrett uh, hearing, uh, she hugged Lindsey Graham and remarked that this has been one of the best hearings that she's ever participated in, uh, including hearings that she's actually run apparently. Uh, yes. Just really impressed with the work that Lindsey Graham did, you know, just shoving the Amy Coney Barrett down our throats. Also, um, like she was just not hard on Amy Coney Barrett at all, like almost. No, just like- and it, and this was the one where it was obvious that she was in total mental decline too, right? Where it was just like very clear that like this is someone who's barely aware of what's going on, and they're in this you know pretty important public position. <laughs> Also, also like we missed this in the outline too, but like she had a pretty big role in botching the Kavanaugh hearings too. Right? Well, no, I was going to get into that because okay. I think this is the much worse um, offender of what she did um, mm. on the judiciary, right? Because I think this is when she's, um, I bl- uh, she's the ranking member at the time. He's Republican, still the majority of the Senate. So 
she received a letter in July 30th of 2018 um, from Christine Blasey Ford with her allegations against Brett Kavanaugh. Um, you know, look into those if you're so interested, if you don't remember or uh, you know, missed out on that whole episode, right? I don't necessarily feel the need to, uh, you know, trigger people who don't feel comfortable with um, that stuff if they don't want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and she waited until September 15th to forward this to the FBI. Notably, this is after all of the hearings were complete and the allegations uh, that she had towards Kavanaugh already leaked to the press at this point as well. Um, there is, um, gosh, I have the book. Uh, it's been a while since I've read it because I, I did it for, um, let's see. Is it Justice on Toronto? I think Supreme Ambition by Ruth Marcus. Brett Kavanaugh on the Conservative Takeover. Uh, this was assigned for one of the classes that I TA'd for, um, and I read it then, but it's been a few years. But it goes through, you know, in detail um, how that happened um, and stuff like that. So, you know, if, you were, if you're interested, delve into that book. But I, I think this is like, to me, it's a much more egregious offense than just like, you know, kind of, you know, giving Amy Coney Barrett like an easy time, right? Because this is like... She could have stopped this confirmation had she, right. like, acted sooner. And, like, I get that, like, you know, her defense was, like, well, you know, Blasey Ford asked to be, like, remain anonymous. It's like, okay, well, like, arguably you put her in a worse position where she was put in a much bigger public spotlight right. because of, like, the even worse timing of it, right? And, you know, it it, it completely backfired, um Again, this raised questions of maybe not necessarily mental capability, but at least competence. Um, and as I, I think this was just a, a, just kind of an egregious failure on her part on the judiciary. Yeah, and I think like that's probably been one of the biggest things to exacerbate. Uh, just 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 the worst ravages of the Trump era as a result of her own actions, right? Was yeah. Putting the conser- enabling a conservative majority on the Supreme Court um in a in a position of just poor health, you know what I mean? Poor cognition. And I think I think it goes to show that like the gerontocracy discussion may have started with like with this, but it it kind of just goes into like a a full system critique, right? Where it's like we're we're hitting a point now where the basic functions of government may be put into risk if the class of people who hold elected office, you know, aren't replenished. And in like these entirely influential and like decisive positions where someone you know needs to be of sound mind to make a reasonable call as we saw with the uh judicial uh committee hearings right it's like you could have at least prevented some of the worst fallout that we've had to deal with these past couple years um we've already i mean we've done like what two episodes now about like supreme court fuckery since we started the show and like (laughs) Probably more than that, to be honest. 
Right, right. <laughs> like, like it's it's honestly like I'm not I'm not saying this as a joke. It's like we can we can just sit here and talk for days about how fucked the court is and like how this new crop of justices is. And to be fair, I don't put like the blame squarely on her shoulders for it. I and I don't necessarily know that she could have truly stopped it, but she could have made it uh a lot harder. And at least I, I think, you know, like there's value to just, you know, having people who are willing to, you know, at least like I I think, you know, at least inspire people from like, you know, going after these guys a little bit more. Right. And I think that like, you know, this is, you know, as much as the Supreme Court has kind of mobilized the uh, Democratic base through just a ton of negative partisanship. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that it, it could have I think that those gains could be even greater if if you had like people in meaningful positions who were at least like showing that like, yeah, like we're not just going to like you know, send you a fundraising email because something shitty happened. We're actually going to, like, you know, give you some tangible benefits. Uh, we're going to fight the good fight, and that's not what we've been getting out of her for exactly. the past, you know, five years at least. No, and I think that's that's the real problem, right? Because as we mentioned earlier, you know, you have people like Barbara Boxer who, you know, take the step out of office gracefully you're in a position where you can protect your legacy a lot more effectively and hey you know say what you will about like kamala harris um who was her successor right but like i mean i i i mean i think that you know is she my favorite politician in the world no but i mean she's definitely a step up over you know some of the other people in the democratic establishment at least you were able to keep that Senate seat in like the hands of the Democratic Party. At a bare minimum level function of party politics, you did your job. You well, know? And, and you know, I think you know here too. Um, I, I guess actually the biggest judicial fuck up, and we've, we, I think I've talked about this on the show too. Recently, um, she because she was like so sick that she couldn't even physically be there. Right, her staff has been running the show. Yeah. Um, and I actually looked at her uh, legislative effectiveness scores uh, from the uh, Center for Effective Lawmaking at Vanderburg University. I okay. used their measure a bit um, for my own research, uh, but I looked what, at them. What, what it, is their uh, criteria? Do you know? <laughs> a ton of things. Okay, um, okay. So, um, so they look at bills introduced, how far they get in the process. Uh, and I think there's three classifications, whether or not they're uh, substantive, commemorative, um, and significant. Okay. Uh, with like, if it's substantive and significant and passes, that's like the hot, biggest boost you can get to your score. Um, but okay. her score has been um, actually pretty decent more recently. Uh, and again, that's entirely her staff more or less running the show. But the one thing her staff can't do is like fill her position on that committee. Exactly. And there was an issue where, like, she didn't want to resign. Um, turns out God had other plans, I guess. Um, which, which well, yeah, <laughs> what, is the, what is the legal, like, standard on this? It's like the representative or senator themselves has to say so they because, resign? Because these are votes on – these are actual votes, like, in committee and, you mm-hmm. know, on the floor sometimes too. So, like, but, like, to get it, like, you know, to – move the nominee to the next step like they could do a discharge petition they did that a lot last congress but they were losing support from like joe manchin to do that because you know of course um and other and you know it was it's just a much slower process to have to discharge petition to get um those nominations on the floor um 
but um the so the the issue was that like republicans didn't want to like confirm a new member to her seat i think they don't have a choice now uh because uh with her death she has been replaced by um crap this is right after we i wrote the outline um Gavin Newsom appointed um, a new um, person, which it was it's something he had said he would do if she resigned, but there was sort of that weird like pressure to like ha- keep her around so as to not model with that primary. Um, again, as I said, you know, God sort of forced uh, forced the hand there, but he is right. sort of appoint- appointed. I think this is the correct pronunciation, Lafonza Butler, who is. Um, Ironically enough, a uh, was a Maryland resident. Yeah. Um, and the uh, president of Emily's List, which is a major Democratic uh, donor. Yeah. Group. Uh, they they primarily contribute to uh, women candidates, and particularly women candidates who are pro-choice. Yep. Um. So you know, generally admirable aims. Uh, she has a career as a union organizer. Um, she was also the president of the California. Uh, Service Employees International Union. Um, what was the other? I, I think she was. She had like I think policy director of like Airbnb at one point, which is uh, not so great. Yeah, um, like again, she was again. So she goes from like being an SEIU like uh, union leader to then being like a uh, political consultant. And is already like advising Uber on how it deals with organized labor. Yeah, as well yeah, as Airbnb's director of public policy. So you can see how bad that looks. Yeah, I forgot about the Uber bit too, right? And, and yeah, like both of these companies that like, um, public opinion has kind of radically turned against. I think, um, where I, I think a lot of people just recognize the sort of the, uh, you know, the, the the issues with these companies and you know the convenience that they once provided. Though I think Airbnb, especially, right, where it was like the idea that that was convenient has just kind of like disintegrated with most people where like you're paying so much to like. It's really gotten to the point where it's like it's actually more convenient, affordable and probably better for everyone involved to get a hotel room. Yeah. And it's it's kind of like the when and you've also had like sort of the real estate issues that have. Right. Because of like just, you know. Uh, screwing out like all these people just buying houses to like Airbnb out, and uh, obviously only people from a certain class are really able to accomplish that. Exactly, unfortunate God. Yeah, so I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. It's like once again, you know, even with this move, I'm, I'm a little sussed out by Butler's record, but it's a nice win for representation it's you know yeah she's uh obviously she's a black woman she's also uh, an open uh, lesbian um, right so it is a win for representation i can say that much but it's like and it's also like the bare minimum as i mentioned you keep the seat in the hands of the democratic party although in california i'd reckon that's safe yeah i mean the only thing that kind of gets into it and i and i i have a little bit of this on the outline where it's like you know sort of kind of explaining how um this has remained, you know, the case, or maybe it's not there anymore. Uh, but California has, yeah, it's there. The California has this jungle primary system. Yeah. Which is really weird. Basically, um, every candidate who is running for a given position is there. Republicans, Democrats, Greens, Libertarians, Fascists, 
Nazis, you know, anyone can anyone can run in the jungle primary. You're all running against each other. And then the top two go on to the general election, right? So if it winds up that two Democrats have the majority, they're the general election. But the problem is, is that you end you can very easily end up in a situation where um, and I'm not convinced uh, like obviously um, LaFone's a uh, Butler, I think, has said that she might be interested in running for re-election, and Gavin Newsom removed that little rider to his uh, condition of appointing someone, because uh, before he was going to appoint someone who then cannot run. Um, so we've, I think, we've talked about this election, this race before, right? But you have um, uh, representatives Barbara Lee, Katie Porter, and Adam Schiff all running. I imagine a few of them will drop out before they actually get to the primary because of the way the jungle primary works. Because if they split the vote sufficiently and there's, let's say, the Republican gets um, the majority of the votes, they just win right then and there uh, with how the jungle primary works. I think that that system has been what has sort of cautioned out like where a lot of people like with feinstein uh have been like why don't people just primary her and i think that that jungle primary system is in part why uh california ironically has a lot of very anti-democratic uh like small d democratic institutions right because like even like the recall election right there was that recall Mm -hmm. election against newsom and like it's a pretty abysmal threshold to just get like some wacko in there um like he doesn't have to get a majority um with the way that petition is set up and i think that that's like it's just baffling how like you know like the recall petition which is like kind of you know in principle the idea of like a recall election is like maybe more democratic right because it increases the number of elections uh or at least potential elections but like when it has like this weird system where like it can give you this incredibly anti-democratic outcome it just doesn't seem worth it right right and also, like, it is odd that I think we're coming off the heels of another, wasn't it like a couple of years ago that there was a whole ballot initiative in California about uh, Uber workers getting some kind of labor protection or some kind of organizing rights? I, I recall and, that, yeah. And basically there was a similar, like, uh, anti-labor push back then. So then for those same interests to have... I mean, let's let's. I'm not really, you know, speculating wildly here to have probably lobbied Gavin Newsom and who he picks to sure. make a temporary replacement for Feinstein. I mean, like, there, there. That's how that's how Lafonza Butler gets in, right? They have the pedigree to say, yeah, I, I'm against labor. I'm fucking on Uber's side. Get me in here. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I don't think in and the, the uh, U.S. Senate she's gonna be able to necessarily do much that would advance right. their cause. Um, again, a lot of those labor issues, I mean, some of it's handled at the federal level, uh, but those are, you know, they, they have to be like kind of, a, and I, I guess you, uh, Uber would be, um, sort of across state lines and whatnot, but yeah, a lot of them are more localized, uh, in how they've been pursuing their, you know, union efforts. Of course, of course. Yeah, I think definitely I, I have like a small interest in like, what are like the different factions and maybe like constituencies at plays at play in different state parties you know yeah i think that's the thesis of what's that book is it is it cowboys versus yankees is that the book it doesn't sound familiar but uh, uh, let's see 
Sometimes you read things no. in a slightly different orbit for me. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I forget which historian was writing this book. I, I'll try to I'll try to find the 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 text. But basically, the this lens of history is like if you look at the kind of like conservatives from like the East Coast, um, in like finance capital and like those traditional sectors of the economy in the Republican party. But then you also have the new money coming out of like the West and the sun belt, the kind of buried mm-hmm. gold water types, they get their money off of mining industry, yeah. oil, that kind of stuff. They kind of represent these rival factions within the national Republican party. Right. And you have people like the Bushes who come in as at the intersection of both, you know, coming from like Connecticut old money and Texas oil money and he kind of comes in at the nexus and is able to be this kind of like mediating figure. I don't know to what extent you can look at that history, but that's stuff I've read about and I've heard people discuss. If I can find the book I'm looking at, I'll send it to you. But I have found this uh, analysis of competing factions very um, explanatory when you understand why certain party infighting happens. So, you know, if you look at, like, the Michigan Republican Party, for example, I'd say, like, you basically have suburban, like, social conservatives in, like, the metro Detroit area. You have the old money from the west side of the state, which is more, Mm -hmm. like, religiously conservative. And then you also just have just the rural right wing, like in the rest of the state, you know what I'm saying? So like, I I just, I have an interest in seeing how those factions play out, but then like this, you know, your explanation of the jungle primary in California explains the constraints these parties are under actually. And that explains a lot about California politics in a way that like, I just, it didn't click until today. Yeah. And like, cause you kind of have to coalesce almost like a little, like, call us before the primary in some ways uh you know maybe not like completely um like diane feinstein actually had a primary challenger at one point but she she beat him um i think it was actually 20 it was her last election um 2016 or 2017 um in terms of uh, when that took place i can't remember if it was like slightly off and and for whatever reason um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's this big thing, right, where it's like, if you imagine, like, all of these, like, sub-factions, and I think increasingly, and it, it actually kind of ties really well into our next story about McCarthy, right, is um, we're, I, I think increasingly you're seeing these partisan factions willing to fight each other a lot more than I think they were before. Yeah, right? and that, I think that they've been, I think the opposite, the internal opposition within different parties has gotten louder and has gotten, um, you know, more willing to, you know, fight the good or maybe bad fight in some cases. Yeah. So, I, I mean, maybe to close the the page on, on, on our discussion about Dianne Feinstein and her legacy, right, is like, you know, she had the opportunity to resign and didn't take it. And I think she'll be remembered for, you know, her mistakes in her old age. But I think what will be forgotten is that she was able to coalesce the old money interest of San Francisco with the patina and veneer of like a respectable social liberalism. Yeah, that might be the most pretentious thing you've said on the show. <laughs> exactly. 
This has been part one of our double feature in our Profiles in Shame series covering former U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein. The following episode, we will cover former Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy and is intended to be listened to immediately after this one. The links to our social media and other useful information will be posted in the show notes. Thanks again for tuning in, dear listener. We will see you in the next episode. Take care.